Well, hey, Grace Chapel, good to be with you all today on this fine Memorial Day weekend. I was going to thank you for not going away for the weekend, but maybe you did. And you're watching from the Cape or uh, the White Mounds or something like that. Either way, we're glad you're with us today. One of the most uh, popular sitcoms on network TV today is a little show called The Good Place. Now, it came out a few years ago, and I caught a couple of the early episodes, but it just didn't quite capture my imagination, so I kind of lost interest. But it turns out the show has kind of found its groove, gained some traction and some momentum. The show follows a woman named Eleanor into the afterlife. Now, in season one, Eleanor finds herself in what appears to be the good place after she dies, where people who have lived a good life spend eternity. The problem is she's landed there by mistake. Because by her own admission, she has lived a not very good life. So with the help of a heavenly roommate, she tries to become a better person so she can earn a permanent spot there in that good place. And by the time we get to the end of season one, spoiler alert, turns out that what appears to be the good place may not be the good place after all. So that sets Eleanor off on a four-season-long quest to find her way to the real good place. Now, I've already told you more than I actually know about the show, so I'll stop right there. I believe that show has captured some uh, attention and acclaim in part because it's addressing some of the biggest questions that human beings have about life and about death and about the life to come. Where do we go when we die? Is there a good place and a bad place? How do we know which one we're headed for? And is there anything we can do to change our destination? Now, this spring, we're talking about this thing called eternal life. We're calling it life beyond. Life beyond success, life beyond religion, life beyond the ordinary, and uh, beginning last week, life beyond death. And that's such a big topic, we're spending a few weeks there. Now, this whole topic of life after death brings to mind the very old joke about the woman who finds herself suddenly died and at the pearly gates. St. Peter uh, invites her in, but says, before you come in, you have to answer one question. She says, what's the question? She says, well, you have to, he says, you have to spell one word. And she says, well, what's the word? And he says, "Uh, let's make it simple, love. She says, oh, that's easy. L-O-V-E. Great, he says, you're in. Come on, enjoy the place. But, he says, I have to run an errand for a minute, so could you just watch the gates while I'm gone until I come back? She says, well, you know, what if someone else shows up? He says, that's all right, just ask them to spell something. So, no sooner does he leave than her husband of 50 years shows up at the pearly gates. What are you doing here, she says. Oh, I was so distraught by your passing on the way home from the funeral, I got into an accident, and and here I am. So what do I do now? How do I get in? She says, oh, it's simple. All you have to do is spell one word. Great. He says, what's the word? She thinks for a minute and says, chrysanthemum. (laughs) You probably saw that coming. But we make jokes like that in part because the life to come is so mysterious but in part because it's so unsettling and raises all kinds of uncomfortable questions. Death is coming for all of us. Eternity is a long time. 
So where are we going to spend it? And how can we be sure we end up in a good place? That's what we're talking about for these few weeks. So last week we learned that we really can believe in such a thing as life after death. Not only does every human belief system hang on to that kind of a notion, it's pretty universal for human beings. But Jesus actually points us in that direction pretty powerfully by raising Lazarus back to life after four days in the grave. Beyond that, he himself then goes to death and comes back to life again. Not just resuscitated, but resurrected with a glorified, transformed body fit for eternity. And then Jesus goes on to say that anyone who believes in him will live even though they die. And in fact, those who believe in him will never die, but will live with him forever and ever and ever and ever. Now, next week, we'll talk about what we're going to do forever and ever and ever and ever. Today, we'd like to talk about what happens to us right after we die. Where do we go and why and for how long? So we're going to turn once again to the words of Jesus, this time to a story he tells, a parable about an imaginary man named Lazarus. No relation to the Lazarus we talked about last week. Instead of reading the story as we've been doing all of these weeks, I'd like instead for you simply to hear the story, the way Jesus' original hearers might have heard it, and then we'll come back and take a closer look. So I'll be sharing the story as it's found in Luke chapter 16. There once was a rich man who dressed in purple and fine linen and lived every day in luxury. At his gate was laid a a sick man named Lazarus, a beggar. He was covered with sores and longed to eat whatever fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when Lazarus died, so the angels came and carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. Send Lazarus to come and dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I am in agony in these flames. But Abraham replied, Son, remember that in your lifetime you received your good things, but Lazarus received bad things. Now he is here in comfort, and and you are there in agony. And besides all this, between you and us, a, a great chasm is fixed. No one can cross over from here to you, nor can anyone come from there to us. The man replied, Then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family. I have five brothers. Let him warn them so they don't come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets, let them listen to them. No, the man said, only if someone comes back from the dead will they repent. And Abraham replied, if they will not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not listen even if someone should rise from the dead. This is the word of the Lord. Now, we want to keep in mind that this is a parable. It's a made-up story. It's one of Jesus' favorite ways of teaching because these stories have a way of sneaking up on us and catching us unawares. 
You have to be careful whenever you're using a parable that you, that you don't make it say more than it's actually meant to say. A parable is designed to teach a few simple truths. We're not supposed to get too hung up or too literal about all the details. For instance, when, when Jesus tells us the kingdom of heaven is like a farmer who went out to sow some seed, he's not telling us that God is a gardener planting a wheat field. He's telling us that God is like a farmer in that he scatters small things in order to grow great things. Unfortunately, with this particular parable, people have read far too much into it and pressed the details beyond the ways they were meant to be pressed. And many of our mistaken ideas about heaven and hell are based on misunderstandings and misinterpretations of this parable, including the idea that hell is an eternal torture chamber and heaven is an eternal picnic in the clouds. The purpose of this parable is not to give us a map of the afterlife. It's to teach us about the connection between this life and the life to come. So let's see, take a closer look and see what we can learn about where we, what happens to us when we die. We first meet a rich man, a really rich man. We're told he's dressed in purple, which means he wears expensive clothes with imported dye. So we're talking Brooks Brothers, not the clearance rack at Kohl's. He's really rich. And when we're told that he wore fine linen, it's actually referring to his undergarments. So we're talking Calvin Klein, not Fruit of the Loom, okay? <laughs> he lived in a gated mansion, and enjoyed all the rewards of money. Now, interestingly, the man is not given a name, and so he's probably supposed to be a representative man of a particular kind of person, a representative of a group of people. The other man is given a name, Lazarus. And that's interesting because it's the only time in any parable that one of these imaginary characters gets a name. So is Jesus telling us that even nobodies are somebody to God? Is Jesus making a subliminal connection between this Lazarus and the real Lazarus, who was in fact raised back to life as the rich man requests? Or is he calling attention to the meaning of the name Lazarus, which is God helps, making him a representative of anyone and everyone who looks to God for help? We don't know for certain. In any event, Lazarus was a poor, needy man. He's apparently sick. He's unable to provide for himself. Perhaps he has some physical disability that's making it hard for him to work. The important thing to notice is that Lazarus is known to the rich man. Not only was he laying outside his gate, but we find out later in the story that the rich man actually knows the beggar's name. So Jesus wants us to imagine this rich man walking past this beggar every day of his life, coming and going, seeing his great need, but doing nothing about it. So the time comes for both of them to die. Now remember, we defined death last week as the separation of the soul from the body. To be human is to be both body and soul. We have a spiritual self and a, and a material self. The spiritual self, our soul, is our real self, our unique person. And it animates our bodies, which God gives us so that we can interact with the material world. Death is the separation of the soul from the body. So what we're learning here is that after death, 
while our physical body remains behind in the ground or wherever it happens to rest, our soul goes on into the afterlife. And according to this parable and other passages of scriptures, it goes to one of two possible places. One of those places we'll call a good place. We, we typically call it heaven, but Jesus never uses that word. The good place is where Lazarus ends up. The time came when Lazarus died, and the angels came and carried him to Abraham's side. Now, the fact that he's at Abraham's side suggests that he's in the presence of God's people and in the presence of God. We're not really told what he's doing there, but it seems to be a place of rest and reunion and, and happiness and comfort. Notice there's no mention of harps or clouds. The other place, which we'll call the not good place, we typically refer to as hell. But that's not the word Jesus uses here, very intentionally. Notice he says the rich man also died and was buried in Hades. See, the word for hell in the Bible, the New Testament, is Gehenna, and we'll talk about that next week. The word Jesus used here is the word Hades, which simply means the grave or the place of the dead. So right away, we need to be careful about applying this parable to our ideas of the eternal destination of those who die apart from God. We haven't gotten there yet. What I want us to see is that neither of these characters have arrived at their eternal destiny yet. They're at what theologians call the intermediate estate. The intermediate state. Now, doesn't that sound an exciting place to go? So we better pause here and do a bit of a theology lesson. The Bible understands human history in two distinctive periods. There's the present age. That's the age in which we now live, where we find ourselves. It's the age that began at creation and will continue until Earth's history runs its course. But then there's an age to come because we know that this present age is fallen that the world is not the way God intended the world to be when he brought it into, into existence. And so a day is coming when God is going to put the world right and create a new heavens and a new earth, a new creation. And that happens in the age to come. The transition between the present age and the age to come, the Bible calls the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord is this whole complex of events that includes the, the return of Christ to earth, evil being vanquished, and among other things, the resurrection of the righteous and the unrighteous. That's when bodies and souls will be reunited, restored, fit for an eternal existence. So hopefully you're beginning to see where I'm going here and where this parable is going. In terms of time, the day of the Lord hasn't happened yet. So bodies and souls haven't been reunited or restored yet. The age to come hasn't started yet. So where do we go when we die? And that's what we call the intermediate estate. It's not the present state because we're not living in this world anymore, and it's not the eternal state because that hasn't happened yet. It's the intermediate state. I'll talk more about the eternal state next week. 
So this intermediate state is a temporary abode. It's a place where we live while we wait for the resurrection of our bodies at the end of the age. And as this parable and other passages suggest, we, sp we, we spend this intermediate state in one of two places. A good place, which Jesus calls Abraham's side, and a not good place, which the Bible calls Hades or the grave, but not hell. Which means that when a believer passes from this life to the next, we shouldn't immediately imagine them walking streets of gold because that hasn't happened yet. We should imagine them instead in this intermediate state, state, and we'll talk about it in a minute. There's an interesting wrinkle here, as if this isn't complicated enough. There's an interesting wrinkle here that's hard to explain but worth thinking about. And I use the word wrinkle intentionally because it literally involves a wrinkle in time to borrow Madeline Lengel's phrase. If the age to come is eternal, that means it exists outside of time. So there's no before and there's no after, there's only now. So is it possible that the age to come exists already? Not subsequent to the present age, but parallel to the present age. As, a, as an alternative reality. So that the moment we pass from this present age, we go immediately into the age to come, even though it hasn't happened yet. Has your mind exploded yet? Okay. <laughs> it's literally a mind-blowing concept because our gray cells just can't really grasp the notion of eternity. But it's an intriguing possibility. Let's come back to these two places for a moment. Two places we might go when we die, a good place and a not good place. What will they be like, and how do we know which one we're headed for? Let's talk about the good place first, which Jesus calls Abraham's side. Abraham, of course, is the father of the faith, so it's logical that he's where God is, and that's where God's people is. Now, fortunately, this isn't the only time that Jesus talks about this intermediate state. When, when Jesus says to the thief on the cross, Today, you'll be with me in paradise. He's talking about the intermediate state, this place of rest. He's not talking about the age to come because that hasn't happened yet. When Jesus is talking to his disciples at the Last Supper, and he says, in my Father's house are many rooms. I go there to prepare a place for you. He's probably talking about this temporary abode because the word he uses for house actually describes a temporary dwelling place. So when we put these few references together, we can begin to understand a little bit about what this good place might be like. Notice, first of all, that it's personal. Lazarus is still Lazarus. He has a name. He has an identity. And so also does the thief. You will be with me in paradise, Jesus says. And so we know that we will be ourselves in this good place. Secondly, the good place will be relational. Lazarus and Abraham are together, side by side, even though they lived thousands of years apart. 
When Jesus tells us that his father's house is, is a home, he's telling us that this good place is, is like a home. It's a place of laughter and conversation and love and learning and people living together in close company. And so, yes, we can expect to be with those we love, those who have gone before us and those who will come after in this good place. We'll know each other's, enjoy each other's company. Thirdly, it will be physical in some way. Lazarus seems to have some kind of body in this place. Now, is it a temporary body awaiting his resurrection? Or has he already received his resurrected body, even though technically it hasn't happened yet? We don't know. But there will be some kind of physicality in this good place. Fourthly, it will be transformational. We won't just be ourselves there, we'll be our best selves there. Lazarus is still Lazarus, but he's not sick anymore. He doesn't have sores anymore. He's not an outcast anymore. He's not hanging out with the dogs anymore. He's not suffering anymore. And the thief, we can be sure, was no longer a thief in the good place. It's a place of transformation. As wonderful as these things are, the best thing about the good place is that we'll be in God's presence there. Jesus will be there. He said to the thief, today you will be with me in paradise. This thief is dying next to the most beautiful, compassionate, strong, righteous man he's ever known. And now he's being told he gets to spend eternity with him. Jesus will be there. When he says to his disciples, and to us, I'm going there to prepare a place for you so that you also may be where I am. That's where God wants us. That's where Jesus wants us to be with him. The Apostle Paul says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. And so it seems as that the moment we leave this life, we enter right into the presence of God in this good place. So beyond those things, we really don't know a lot about this good place, this intermediate state. As the song says, we can only imagine what our eyes will see and what our hearts will feel. When someone we love dies and passes on, we like to imagine them playing golf or cooking dinner for a big crowd or writing music or building a deck or whatever it is they love to do in this life. And those kinds of things may well happen. But the truth is, we just don't know. We can only imagine. What we do know is that in that place that we call heaven, we will be our full and best selves. We will be with those we love in Christ. We will be doing things that matter eternally. And we will be with the Lord, the one who loved us came for us, died for us, rose for us, and wants to spend eternity with us. As wonderful as the good place sounds, remember, it's not even the best place. That's yet to come, and we'll talk more about it next week. So there's a lot to look forward to. But that's not the only place we can end up after death. The rich man ends up in a very different place, which we'll call for now the not good place. 
Now remember, this isn't the eternal destiny of the unrighteous. That's the place we call hell. This is that temporary intermediate state. Unfortunately, so many of our mistaken ideas about Hades and hell are based on this one parable. In fact, most of people's fanciful imaginations of hell are based on this story. Dante's Inferno, medieval paintings, far side cartoons, they're all based on this one short metaphorical story. And that's unfortunate because it sends us in all kinds of wrong directions. The truth is, Scripture tells us very little about those who end up in a not good place. But the parable suggests a few things. For one thing, it's a separate place. The most chilling aspect of this whole scene is the fact that the rich man is cut off. He's cut off from Abraham, who's far away. He's cut off from his fellow human being, his neighbor, Lazarus. Abraham's side seems to be a place of relationship, a place of community. There doesn't seem to be any sense of community in Hades. Now, there must be other people there, but the rich man isn't relating to any of them. There's no one nearby to turn to for hope or help or comfort or even commiseration. And the worst thing, of course, is that he's cut off from God. There's this great, uncrossable chasm between them. And so whatever the not good place is like, one thing it seems is that it's lonely. There are no poker games being played there. And that leaves a second observation we can make about the not good place. It's an unhappy place, to put it mildly. Now, we're told the rich man is in torment, and that sounds awful, and it is awful. But let's be sure that we understand something. There's a difference between torment and torture. Torture is something inflicted on you by someone else. Torment is something internal. Torment is anguish. Torment is regret. Torment is frustration. The torment this rich man is experiencing, he brought on himself by the choices he made in life. And as for the fire and thirst imagery, remember, this is a parable. It's an extended metaphor. We don't think the kingdom of God is really like a wheat field. So why would we think that Hades and hell are like a furnace? It's just a metaphor. Remember, Jesus is speaking to people who live in a desert climate. If you live in a desert climate, the thing you fear the most is inescapable heat and unquenchable thirst. And so Jesus chooses a couple of images that he knows will stir up feelings of a not good place. And that's the point he's trying to make. So this is not a good place. It's a place of unhappiness. But let's be clear about one thing. It is not an underground torture chamber. There's no indication here or anywhere in the Scripture that that's what Hades or hell is all about. Nor is there any indication in the Scripture that Hades and hell is about punishing people. That's just not there in the Scriptures. 
We need to get out of our minds these images of a vindictive, punishing God. That's not the God we meet in Scripture. It's not the God we meet in Jesus. These are things that we want, vindictiveness and punishment. It's not things that God wants. Hades, hell, is simply about separation from God. It's simply a place you go if you don't want anything to do with God. So that leads us to the third observation we can make about this not good place. It's an unrepentant place. Notice this. The rich man still thinks of Lazarus as his inferior. Tell him to come and dip his finger in water. As if Lazarus exists to serve his needs. Notice something else. He asks Abraham to have pity on him, but he never asks Abraham to forgive him. He never says he's sorry or expresses any kind of repentance. And notice most importantly, he never expresses any desire to be at Abraham's side. He doesn't ask Lazarus to come and get him. He doesn't ask Abraham to rescue him from this place. He simply says, dip a little water on my tongue so I can have some relief down here. See, the, the rich man is unchanged. He's the same person after death that he was before death. A self-centered, demanding, want nothing to do with God kind of a person. Which answers the most troubling question we ask about Hades and hell. Why does such a place exist? It exists simply to provide an alternative who people who aren't, for people who aren't interested in life with God. This man has shown no interest in a life with God. Like his brothers, he chose not to listen to Moses and the prophets. He chose not to love God or his neighbor as himself. He wanted nothing to do with God in this life, and now it seems he wants nothing to do with God in the life to come. And that leads us to the big idea of this simple story. What happens to us after we die is determined by choices we make before we die. What happens to us after we die is determined by decisions we make before we die. God, God didn't send the rich man to the not good place. The rich man chose it when he chose life without God. The God we meet in the Scripture, the God who reveals himself in Christ, doesn't want anybody to go to the not good place. In fact, did you notice how Abraham addressed the rich man? He called him son. Son. He still loves that man. Even in that not good place, even in his hard-heartedness, he still loves him. A few weeks ago, we looked at the most famous verse in the Bible, John 3:16. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish, but will have eternal life. God loves every human being, including you. God wants every human being to live with him forever and ever, including you. And so he's made it as simple as possible 
for us to get there. You don't have to earn your way there by doing good deeds or going to church or spelling chrysanthemum. You go there simply by turning to God in repentance and faith and following the way of Jesus into eternal life. But here's the thing. We have to choose now, in this life, whether we want the life of God or not. Now, I know people often like to wonder, will there be a second chance after death to repent and turn to God? It's an intriguing possibility and maybe even an attractive possibility. This particular story doesn't seem to allow for that possibility, at least not in the intermediate state, because it describes this inescapable chasm. But we'll talk more about that next week. Choose now. So it turns out this TV show gets at least one thing right. There is a good place and a not good place waiting for us after we die. But getting to one or the other has nothing to do with earning our way there. It has everything to do with choosing our way there. So how will we choose? Will we choose the way of Jesus? Or will we choose our own way? Choose carefully, the parable tells us. And choose now. Let's pray. I want to allow us a quiet minute or two just to let these thoughts settle for just a minute. To consider which way we might have chosen or are choosing. Thank you, Lord, for speaking to these profound and unsettling questions. Thanks, thank you that we're not left on our own to guess and figure and hope things work out, but that you've shown us a way to life with you now and forever. Thank you for making it as simple as following your son, Jesus, receiving his forgiveness, allowing him to begin changing us and to lead us to life with you. Lord, if there are any here today who have never made that choice, never chosen life with God, pray that by your Holy Spirit you might bring them to that moment, maybe today, maybe right now, to say yes and choose life with God today. For the many of us who have already made that choice, Lord, whether recently or a long time ago, thank you for making the way clear. Thank you for your Spirit's help in making that choice. Thank you that we're on our way and that we can have assurance that we belong to you now and forever. We need not fear the grave. Pray, Lord, that we might not just find comfort in this hope, but that we might share it freely with those who've yet to understand it or those who've yet to receive it. Thank you, Lord, for loving us this much, that you would come and find us, find us in our lost and needy place, that you would forgive us, make us whole, and bring us into your family now and forever. We're grateful for that. In Jesus' name, amen.